Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's good to be back in 2 Samuel, kind of, 2 Samuel. We're in Psalm 3 this morning, which is a commentary, as Larry reminded us, on the events in 2 Samuel. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be in Psalm 3 this week and Psalm 63, Lord willing, next week. And then we got about three more Sundays and we wrap up Samuel for the year. And Lord willing, we will begin the Gospel of Luke around Christmas time. So just a quick announcement before we get into Psalm 3 this morning. Um, if you were at the wedding reception yesterday for Maggie and for Aiden, uh, those pictures are in, and you can pick those up in the foyer uh, after the service today. Now, since we've, been, uh, since we've been a few weeks out from being in 2 Samuel, it's been a little over a month, I think, since we were last in the book, I think it'd be good just to pause for a second and uh, review what we've seen so far so that we can get the context again of what David is writing about. But before I even get to that, I just want to show you where this psalm, Psalm 3, fits in the, the context of the entire book of Psalms. Because, as you notice, if you are looking at Psalm 3, there are two psalms that come right before this, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And it's interesting, if, if you're not aware of this, it, it would be something that's worth, worth being reminded of and studying it at a deeper level. The psalms are not scattershot in the way they're put, put together. There's actually a reason that certain psalms follow other psalms. Now, sometimes we can figure that out. Sometimes it's a little more challenging. But I think Psalm 3 is, is pretty easy to understand why this psalm is put here in, in the Bible. If you remember, um, Psalm 1 is a, is, a, is a kind of an opening psalm that, that serves as a general contrast between the wicked and the, un, the, the ungodly and the godly, the wicked and the righteous. And then in Psalm 2, there's a contrast between the righteous son of God, the righteous anointed one, the righteous king, and those who are wicked and opposed to him. So in Psalm 1, you've got this general statement, they're wicked, they're righteous, they're living two different lifestyles. Then in Psalm 2, you get, here's the Lord's righteous king, and here's all those who are wicked and opposed to him. Then you get Psalm 3. What's Psalm 3 about? A wicked son opposed to a righteous king. And so it is the first illustration of Psalm 2. The Davidic king is alone, faced with innumerable enemies, which now include his own family. And one such wicked would-be ruler, David's son Absalom, is seeking to take out the Lord's anointed king, his father David which is an illustration of Psalm 2. Now let's just review the background of this psalm and David's relationship with his son Absalom. Overall, as we've seen, David has been a great king for Israel. His military ability was legendary. He he extended Israel's power and influence to neighboring areas. He was fabulously wealthy. He lived in a palace of breathtaking splendor and majesty, with his many wives and his servants. But then David sinned with one of the wives of his mighty men, Uriah, a woman named Bathsheba, and then he ordered the death of Uriah. And although David subsequently repented when the prophet Nathan came to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David's sins set in motion a series of God-ordained and devastating consequences that would come to the life of David and also the nation of Israel. And one such consequence is that the sword would not depart from his own house, that his own sons would be those that opposed him 
in his kingship. And of course, the first of those sons that ends up doing that is his son Absalom, who is presented as an impressive and handsome figure. 2 Samuel 14 says that there was no blemish in him whatsoever, somewhat reminds us of even the description that Samuel gave of David back in 1 Samuel. No doubt, David was proud of his son, Absalom. He showed tremendous promise. The sky was the limit in terms of this boy's potential. He was loved by his father. However, when Absalom's oldest brother and David's son, Abnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar, Tamar's brother, Absalom, took revenge by murdering Amnon. Absalom fled into exile for several years, and initially David refused to see his wayward son. The resentment began to build, and Absalom began to court the disgruntled people in the kingdom, offering himself as a more sympathetic and worthy leader than David. Yet even after he murdered Amnon, David forgave Absalom and grew once again to trust him. But Absalom had a plan. And in 2 Samuel 15, the Bible says, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now this led to a successful coup on the part of Absalom, and David was forced to abdicate the throne and flee the city of Jerusalem. Absalom pieced together a strong conspiracy. David realized that to survive, he had to flee the capital immediately. And so the Bible says, He wept and he went barefoot as he fled for his life. He also endured the ridicule and rock-pelting of a man named Shimei, whose cursings and actions were such that David and all who were with him became weary, exhausted on their fight for their life. He cursed at David, threw stones at him, accused him of being a worthless man who had brought, brought about his own downfall by being a man of bloodshed. And worst of all, now Absalom, his own son, was seeking to take his life. Now, we thought David had experienced traumatic circumstances up to this point, and he has. Pretty much his whole life has been marked by opposition. But this level of opposition is even more acute than what he experienced with Saul. As bad as that was back in 1 Samuel, when Saul was seeking him and chasing him, trying to hunt down his life, Once David had been rescued out of all that, delivered out of the hands of Saul and out of Saul's attempts to murder him, then he set up as king over Israel. He's enjoying a prosperous reign. Then he has a moral downfall. And now all over again, it's going through this exile experience. You know, it's one thing to go through something really bad, be delivered out of it, and never go into it again. It's another thing to go through something really bad, be delivered out of it, and go back into a similar situation even worse this time. And this owing to your own sin, not owing to the sin of other people around you. This was the worst experience of David's life. Everything that he had spent his life working for was now suddenly unraveling all around him. Many whom he had thought were allies and friends had abandoned him and sided with his own rebellious son, And the most painful wound of all was this treachery and betrayal of Absalom. It brought home to David his own failures, both as a father and as a king. One son was murdered, 
One daughter was raped, and now the murderer was after his own father's life in addition to his kingdom. Life was falling apart for David. And it's during this tremendous trial and test of faith that David pens the psalm of lament that we know as Psalm 3. This is one of the most painful hours of David's life. A night of darkness has engulfed his soul as he realizes all he has done and all he has accomplished is coming to an abrupt end. Being rich and famous, powerful and influential did not prevent David from problems and difficulties. Far from it. He's gone from the throne to the valley, from having everything to having nothing, from living life to running for his life. What can David do? What should we do when the shadow of death crosses our horizon and all seems to be lost? You know, we're dealing with a lot of trouble as a congregation. It seems like we're always dealing with trouble. Man is born into trouble, Job says, as the sparks fly upward. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. The fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says. And so this psalm is evergreen for us. It's always relevant. I hope you'll find it helpful this morning as, we, as you take your trouble, whatever trouble you might be experiencing right now, whether it's physical trouble, spiritual trouble, relational trouble, marital trouble, familial trouble, work trouble, whatever trouble, pour it in to this psalm and let this psalm by the Holy Spirit disciple you. Let God teach you how to respond to the troubles of life all over again. Let's go back to school and let's learn the ABCs again of dealing with trouble. And really, this psalm teaches us that there's really only one thing we can faithfully do in the midst of our trouble, and that's trust in the Lord and call out to him in confidence that he will deliver us. That's all we got. And if that doesn't work, we are indeed up the creek without a paddle. But David's been run out of town on a rail, and he's fled for his life like a scared rabbit, and he's found a quiet moment of rest. And what does he do? He turns to God, and he pours out his heart in prayer. I was reading one writer this week who said, quote, Prayer is the way we slug our way through the troubles of life. I thought that's a good way to describe it. Prayer is the way we slug our way through the troubles of life. So what does that look like? What does it look like to slug our way in prayer through the troubles of life? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. What does it look like to slug our way through the troubles of life in prayer? David gives us three answers in this very brief psalm. Psalm 3. First of all, David shares his problem with God. David shares his problem with God. You know, when we encounter problems, we really have three responses we can do, right? We can refuse to share the problem with anybody and just stuff it. And if you've done that for any period of time, you know how that goes. doesn't make the problem go away. All it does is make you harder in the midst of the problem. Or... A second way is we can go horizontal and share our problem with everybody else but God. Everybody's going to hear about our problem. 
We're not praying about it, but we sure are complaining about it. That's another option. Or, thirdly, we can go right to God. We can share our problem with God, and that's what David teaches us to do first. There is always a place for sharing our problems with each other. That's legitimate. That's what the church is here for. But first, and hopefully not to the exclusion of other things, but certainly essential to all those things, is sharing our problem with God. So what does David do in sharing his problem with God? Well, first of all, David tells the Lord what other people are doing to him. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. They're attacking him. They're rising up against him. And apparently, their number is increasing as he uses the word many twice. David, David's numbers appear to be shrinking while those of his enemies are appearing to be multiplying. David senses that he's getting hemmed in on every side. Escape appears impossible. Everywhere he turns and everywhere he looks, he sees the enemy, those who wish to do him harm. Now, why is David telling the Lord this? Doesn't the Lord know this? The Lord knows. He says, oh Lord, how many are my foes? If I don't tell you, you won't see them. Is that what he's saying? No. God calls us to share our problems with him for our sake, not his sake. He knows what the problems are, but we need to tell him what the problems are. And so David tells the Lord what other people are doing to him and how it makes him feel. He says, I feel like everybody is against me. You ever been there? Surely we have at some level. I feel like nothing's going right, everything's going wrong, and everybody's against me in the midst of it. So David tells the Lord what they do. But secondly, David tells the Lord what they say. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So not only are people attacking him, but they are accusing him. And dear ones, this is the deepest wound. This is the thing that wounds David most deeply because maybe he even wondered if what they were saying is true. He had murdered Uriah. He had stolen his wife Bathsheba. He had committed adultery with her. His family was a disaster. His daughter had been raped. His son was murdered. And now a son was seeking his life and it was all his fault. Perhaps this was God's judgment. That's certainly what his enemies were saying, and they had a point. That's the the danger about the accusations of the enemy. There's truth in it. There's truth in it. It is God's judgment in David's life. It is God's discipline in David's life that is producing this. And so when they say there is no salvation for him in God... Not only when David looks horizontally does he see justification for that, but when he actually stops back and considers it, he says, yeah, they're probably right. There is no help. There is no deliverance. There is no salvation for me. My life's done. My reign's finished. I'm a has-been. I'm yesterday's news. I'm tomorrow's nobody. Dear ones, no matter what problems we are facing, almost all suffering has these same two dimensions to it. An attack and an accusation. The attacks in verse 1, the accusations in verse 2. 
Here's what Tim Keller says about the attack and the accusation in the midst of our troubles. He says, Just as spiritual accusation accompanies the physical attack in David's life, so an assault on your belief in the gospel normally accompanies troubles when they come into your life. It's quite normal to have some major setback in your life and find that it's accompanied by severe doubts about God's love for you or about the legitimacy of your hopes for his care and his commitment. Isn't that true? Oftentimes our greatest problem come from attacks and accusations from Satan himself or at least from his assistants. As believers, we all have an accuser who is against us. His job is to accuse us, to make us doubt that God can love or care for us. In fact, Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser. Satan may use human beings to shake our confidence in God's commitment to us, or he may attack us directly or psychologically, assaulting our consciences with inappropriate guilt or unrealistic standards so that we look weak and foolish in our own eyes. And in this sense, all Christians always have a formidable enemy who is seeking every day to say to us in some way, God's salvation is not for you. Or in other words, God's salvation, while it may be for you, it is inadequate for you. God will not save you. God will not deliver you. Now, our problems can take other forms as well. Let me give you a few of them. Maybe one of these resonates more with you now than others. What about the thorn in the flesh? We need God's grace to accept the inconvenient, limiting, painful things going on in our bodies. He's able to free us to boast in our weaknesses, not just bemoan them. What about the burr in the saddle? Some of us are just dealing with aggravating circumstances or people. Irritation is coming really easy, and we need to ask God for patience and kindness. What about a punch in the gut? Some of us are reeling from fresh disappointments or betrayals or unresolved situations. What about a regret in the past? Some of us are being haunted or shamed or shaped by past failures. What about an arrow in the heart? Some of us are facing intense relational pain. But these problems, all of them, whatever different shape or whatever different form they take, give us an opportunity to not listen to the attacks of the enemy or the accusations of the enemy, but rather to turn and worship the one who is able to help us. And that's what David does. Even as he feels this attack and these accusations so acutely, it does not stop him from calling out to God about them. And that's what we must not let us stop either. Because even though people are saying to him, there's no hope for you. There's no salvation for you in God. Even though he may be listening to those accusations, you notice what he's doing? He's calling out to God, which means the accusations haven't gotten down into his bones just yet. He actually does believe there is some salvation for him in God, otherwise he wouldn't be praying about it. Dear ones, there is always salvation for you in God. Always. It is never true that there is no salvation for you in God. Don't let the attacks or the accusations tell you otherwise. So that's what David does first. He shares his problem with God. He shares about the attacks he's experiencing. He shares about the accusations he's feeling. Secondly, David shouts his praise 
to God. David's complaint now intentionally takes a 180 degree turn. He gets biblical in response to being emotional. And we got to do that. You got to get that. You got to get biblical in response to being emotional. Emotional is very important. I don't want to minimize the role of emotions. We are human beings. We are meant to feel things deeply, but we are never to let those feelings rule us. Ever. We have to tell ourselves things. We got to get biblical in the face of the emotional. And more than that, we got to get theological in the face of the experiential. What we're experiencing, what we're feeling, what's emotionally rocking us, we need to take to the Bible. We need to take to God, not just in prayer, but also tell our minds what's true, regardless of how we feel. We got to get our eyes off of our enemies, off of ourselves and how we feel, and direct our gaze onto the power and to the promise of God. Despair gives way to glorious confidence for David as he recalls and remembers who God is and what God is like. So what do we need to do? What does this look like? First, David tells God who he is. Look at verse 3. But you, ooh, those are important words. We got how many, how many in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, but you. That's the soul shift. Away from the many to the one. What does he call God? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Let's talk about each one of those phrases that he uses to describe as God. First of all, he speaks of God as his shield. What's that? It's his protector, right? That's what a shield does. It protects you from the darts and the arrows that the attackers and the accusers are sending your way. This is not one of the little shields a soldier, soldier used in hand-to-hand contact, uh, combat. This was a full-length shield the size of a door used to ward off arrows. A soldier would hold it up in front of him as he walked toward a fortress. Literally nothing could get past it to harm the bearer of the shield. And it's this assurance This shield that David reminds himself of, and the Lord is this shield for David. The shield here in verse 3 is a light shield. It's used to deflect arrows or other objects that are hurled at us. The Lord is ready at a moment's notice to deflect the fiery darts of the evil one. Now this does not promise that no one will ever be able to do anything to cause us pain or damage. What this does promise is that any pain that does get through will only get through God's protection allowing it to get through. God will only allow part of this to wound us for our good. God is always shielding us, whatever happens to us. And it will only be part of his long-term defense of us if anything gets to us. If we lose something now, it's only to shield us from losing something greater much later. And actually what God is allowing David to walk through is to save David. It's to to keep David dependent on the Lord. 
And God will allow that, brothers and sisters, into our lives, whatever it is. If he feels like we're getting a little too big for our britches, and we're getting a little too independent, and we're getting a little too self-confident, and we're getting a little drifting and unbelieving, he has his ways of reminding us that we're not God and that he loves us and that he's planning to save us. And the, 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 the worst thing that God could do is to give you a super blessed life with no trouble so that you never feel any, def- any dependence on him whatsoever. That's the worst thing God could do for you. And he gives it to millions of people all the time. And it's not a form of blessing. But what God can give is a sorrow that's mingled to help us trust him and lean on him and rely on him. So the promise here is not God won't let me suffer. The promise is that even if I do, God is shielding me from the intentions of all my enemies and of Satan himself and will not permit any of what they intend for evil to come to pass, but only what God intends for good to be accomplished through their work. And it's this assurance that you can say in the face of all these accusations, nothing can ultimately or truly harm you. Nothing. One writer says, the God-centeredness of David's gaze here keeps him steady while his enemies try to decide what precise level of scum he is. You can be steady when everybody around you thinks you're scum. Because your gaze is directed at your shield. But David not only tells God that he's a shield, but secondly, he tells God that he's his glory. You see that in verse 3? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. David D- Derek Kidner, commentator, writes, My glory is an expression to ponder. It indicates the comparative unimportance of earthly esteem. David realizes that he's allowed his people's approval and praise to bolster his self-esteem. He walked with head held high because of his acclaim, because of his popularity, and now David is downcast because he made something else his glory besides his relationship with God and God's love for him. Now that's enormously important for us as we learn how to process our suffering. When something, dear ones, gets taken from us, even a good thing, Our suffering is real and it is valid, but often inside we are disproportionately cast down because the suffering is shaking out of our grasp something we allowed to become more than just a good thing to us. It had become too important, too important spiritually, too important emotionally, and we looked at it as our honor and our glory, the reason we could walk with our heads up. We may have told others that Jesus is my Savior. His approval and his opinion of me and his service are all that matter, but functionally, we were getting our self-worth from something else. And in suffering, these something else's get shaken. And in David's case, he realized that he had let popular opinion and earthly esteem become too important to him. And so what does he do? He relocates his glory. He says, God, you are my glory. Not this kingdom. You're my glory. By recommitting himself to finding God as his glory, that is something that can only be done in prayer through repentance and adoration, we see David growing 
in his resilience and in his courage. Our problems can help us recognize that some good earthly thing may have become too important to us. Maybe our health was too important to us. Maybe our relationships were too important to us. Maybe our identity was too wrapped up in those things. And suffering begins to threaten them and gives us an opportunity to make Christ again our true and lasting glory. And that is a precious, precious gift. Because in prayer, we look at such things and say, I don't need you to survive if I have you. I don't need you to survive. I'm thankful. I don't need you to survive because God is my glory. And dear ones, that's what God's doing in our suffering. He's helping us relocate our glory back onto him. That's ultimately what he's doing. Am I enough for you, God is saying to us. Will you find your all in me? I think of the great um, hymn that I was reminded of this week by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow and strengthen every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And then Newton talks about all these sincere desires. I love the Lord. I long for the Lord. I wanted to seek the Lord. And then he began to assault me. He began to send fear into my soul. And then the last verse says that as I did this, why was the Lord doing all of this? He goes, this is how I answer prayer for grace and faith. That I might shake you. So look that up a little bit later. It's worth reading. I wish I would have had it in my notes, but it just came to mind now. I asked the Lord that I might grow, John Newton. You will find it, and it will be a blessing to your soul because it takes you through that whole struggle of how do I wrestle, what is God up to, and how does God bring it to pass in our lives? Finally, David says, you're not only my shield, you're not only my glory, but you're the lifter of my head. Isn't that a precious description of God? David has a droopy head, he's depressed, he's downcast, he's struggling, And the Lord can fix all that. The Lord puts his finger on David's chin and says, chin up, my boy. Chin up, my boy. Get your head up. Get your head up. Life's not over for you. Absalom has brought you shame and embarrassment. You fled from your throne. Your tail's between your legs. Your head's hanging down. It's no big deal. It's no big deal, ultimately. (laughs) I am your honor. I am your dignity. I am your reputation, David. Get your head up. And so, David begins, even in this prayer, to begin being restored. Because he's finding that all that he needs is ultimately in God. God, you're my protector. You're my shield. God, you're my glory. You're the most significant, weighty thing in my life. And then finally, you're the lifter of my head. You are the one who encourages me. So test, your, test yourself here. Where are you looking for protection? Where are you looking for honor and esteem and weight and significance? And where are you looking for encouragement? God is the one. And all of our trials, are, 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 David's trials were sent into his life. They discouraged him. They made him feel worthless. They made him feel like his life was over. They made him feel like he had no protection anywhere, and God was using all this to say, you will find it in me, David. I am your shield. I am your glory. I am your encouragement. So David not only tells God who he is, but secondly, David tells God, or tells us what God did. 
Notice what God does in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me. David prayed. He prayed hard. But notice, he doesn't have to pray long. Doesn't take a long prayer. Just takes a sincere prayer. And this verse and those that follow reveal God's answer. He heard me from his holy hill. Now what's that? From the very place that God had installed David as king, David received his answer from God. The people plotted, the king set themselves, the rulers conspired, his own son joined the ranks of opposition to David and sought his ruin, and yet God set his king on the throne and laughs at them and derides those who oppose him. Just like Psalm 2 said. David says, you made a promise to me and you're a God who always keeps your word. I may have doubted, but no more. I cried, you heard, what more do I need? So first of all, David shared his problem with God. Second, David shouts his praise to God. Thirdly and finally, David senses his protection from God. David senses his protection from God. First of all, David believes God is who he says he is. Look at verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, he functionally believes that God was going to keep him alive. No matter if he stays up all night and tries to defend himself from Absalom, he knows that he can go to sleep. And notice what happened after he prayed. He finally got a good night's sleep. You know, some of you all may be in need of a good night's sleep, and what's keeping you up is prayerlessness. You will not give it over to God. You just stew on it and stew on it and let it sit in your soul and it keeps you awake at night. God would not have you do that. God would have you give it to him so that you can go to sleep. Because once you've transferred, once you know God's my protection, God's my glory, he's the most significant, important thing in my life, and he's my encouragement, lights out. I'm going to be okay. Go to sleep. And once that gets down in your soul, you can go to sleep. Enemies are all around. His circumstances haven't changed a lick. Absalom Absalom hasn't come up and said, all right, I surrender, I'm done. Nope, still hunting his life down. David's napping. David would say in Psalm 121, verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Why can David go to sleep? Because he knows God never will. God doesn't have to sleep, so David can. God's got him. God's protecting him. God's encouraging him. So therefore, he doesn't need to have his circumstances changed. And notice that the peace that God gives is both immediate and it's long-term. It's immediate in verse 5. I lay down and I went to bed. But it's long-term in verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around me. Now the many has shrunk. Verse 1, huge problem. Verse 6, no problem. He says, Lord, there's no reason for both of us to stay awake. I'm going to go to sleep now. You keep watch. And now the many of verses 1 and 2 
are not just smaller, they're bigger. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. He's, it's almost like as soon as he realizes again that God's his shield, God's his glory, God's the lifter of his head, he's like, add, add to the army. Add more soldiers. Bring on more opposition. He's talking like a crazy man. No, he's talking, about a, he's talking like a believing man. He's talking, he's talking about a God who when we compare him to the nations, the nations are dust on the scale. This is God we're talking about. If he's got God, it doesn't matter if six or seven billion people are against him. He says, I see many all around me and they're everywhere. They have set against me all around. But David reaches over and puts on his no fear shirt and goes to bed and is kept safely through the night. This peace that David experiences covers both his first night and his unforeseeable future, even though no circumstances have changed. That is what your God will do for you, is give you that level of soul peace, that even though nothing has changed in my circumstances, I'm going to be okay, because my God is for me. Secondly, David believes God will do what he says. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now David comes to an actual request. He really hasn't requested anything yet. All he's done is said, Here's my problem, God. Here's who you are. Here's how I feel about it. But now he requests. See, dear ones, God's got soul work to do before we start asking him for things. Just sit with him first. Like when we're experiencing trouble, don't go from trouble right to God, prayer. Go, go to prayer, but don't just start listing requests first. First of all, say, God, you are. You are this. I am this in you. Remind yourself of who God is. And Pray to him about who he is. Tell him who he is. Again, not for his sake, for your sake. And then make your requests. This is why we begin with adoration, right? Didn't we learn this when we were young Christians? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. There's a reason we start with adoration and thanksgiving before we get to prayer requests. Because adoration and thanksgiving has a way of flavoring what we request and how we request it. And it changes the nature of the request to make them more honoring to God and more consistent with the way he works. Now comes David's actual request. What does he pray? Very simple. Save me. (laughs) Arise. Do something about this. Rescue me, O God. Arise is a prayer for God to come to the aid of his people in power and in glory. And David is so confident in what God will do, he uses what what some writers call the prophetic perfect tense. That is, this is as good as done, and I'm resting in it. It hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as happening. And I know it's unfolding, and in God's perfect time, he will answer. So the Lord's future vindication of David is so certain that he can write it as if it's already happened. 
And again, there's a beautiful poetic parallelism as David's enemies, pictured as wild and dangerous animals all around him, are described also as receiving a crushing blow from the Lord. He says, God's going to jack the jaw and smash the teeth of the ungodly who have walked the path of the sinners of Psalm 1 and the wicked of Psalm 2. Yes, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, Psalm 1, verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here again, we're confronted with a prayer for God's judgment. Now, these are prayers in the Psalms asking for God to punish or to restrict or to destroy the wicked. And on the one hand, God does call for us to pray such prayers that he would exercise his justice in the world because his justice is always right. But they also remind us of how important God's holiness and justice are. So we must not recoil and dismiss prayers like Psalm 3 verse 7 as somehow primitive and unworthy of the Christian to pray. It's a plea that God will do what he has promised to do to destroy evil and remove everything that harms others and defames God's name. But until that day, the gospel's logic compels us to pray for our enemies and wish good for them as we do so, even if we are opposing their deeds. We cannot feel superior to them nor hope that they personally will pay for their sins, but when we, by grace, have been exempted from the punishment that we deserve and the payment we deserve to make for our own sins. Now, we know that God in the end will not let evil prevail, whether people repent or not, but our job right now is to pray, to love our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. Pray that for them, first of all, that they would experience the very salvation that David is praying he would experience. Now, I want to connect this psalm specifically to Jesus Christ. As is most common when we come to the psalms, we should just read it and not think of David first and not think of ourselves first, but think of Jesus first. And can you hear the Lord at any point in his life praying something like this? Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. If he's God, let him save himself. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I crowd aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. You ever think about the Lord praying something like that? When we, we might he have prayed something like that? Garden of Gethsemane? On the way to the cross? As people are mocking him and shaming him and saying, look at him under the curse of God. And Jesus intentionally directing himself to God and saying, you're my glory, you're the lifter of my head. What happened after Jesus gave up his spirit and died on the cross? Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again. What's that remind you of? Resurrection. He came back to life. He said, no doubt, save me, O God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. On Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ got saved. He got rescued. He got delivered. Why? 
because of David's sin, because of my sin, because of your sin. He lives Psalm 3 for us. Jesus experienced all the oppression of the, in the accusations of his enemies and the devil himself, and yet he trusted the Lord, he looked to the Lord, he cried out to the Lord and said, it's finished, and he died and he gave up his spirit and it looked like all was lost until he lay down and slept and three days later he arose. He woke again for the Lord sustained him. And dear ones, if you are in Christ, all of your trials and all of your troubles come through his loving hands for you. They pass through him. And, and, and he is a sympathetic savior because he's lived where you lived. He knows what these things are. He knows what David experienced. He knows what we experienced in a far deeper way than we ever will. So we can turn in our troubles and we can know that there is salvation for him and for us and God. Why? Because we're so good, because we trust God so well, because we're so great at responding to troubles with prayer and believing God's promises. No, because Jesus laid down and slept and woke again. That's your hope. That's my hope. That's the reason that this, this psalm begins with, there's no salvation for me and God, and then ends with, salvation belongs to the Lord. How do you get there? You get there because the son of David lived this psalm for you. That's why. Because he lived it perfectly. He didn't, he didn't earn any of the suffering that David experienced. David, David, David's getting what he deserved here at, at a certain level. Surely Absalom's going in his own sin too. But David's getting the consequences of his sin. But he's also experiencing the salvation of his God. Why? David blew it. He doesn't deserve God's rescue. Because Jesus later would come and live and die and rise for David. And so David can have absolute confidence that God will hear him when he calls out to him, even though he's a sinner and deserves God's judgment. And we can experience the exact same thing. Because God answers our prayers, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the fact that Jesus lived Psalm 3 for us and came out on the other side, rising again in triumph over sin and death. So when your enemies are too many to count, friends, cry out to the Lord. He heard David, and he will hear you because he heard Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the comfort that you give us through it. Thank you for the practical ways you teach us. And you don't just say, hey, do this and when you're experiencing trouble. You actually let us walk beside your suffering saints through the decades, through the years, through the millennia, and learn how to trust God as we watch them trust you. So thank you for the example of David here, that even though he experiences this great trouble in his life, he does not let it stop him from calling on you and calling out to his God and trusting in his God and experiencing the peace and the rescue that comes from you. And Lord, help us to see our Lord to see our Jesus in this psalm and to rest and to learn from him how we ought to respond to our own trouble. The same way, we share our problems with you, we shout our praise to you, and we sense our protection from you, all while resting, resting in you, knowing that you are our shield, you are our glory, and you are the lifter of our head. 
Thank you for lifting up Jesus' head. Thank you that when his head was bowed on the cross, you lifted it on Sunday morning and you brought him out of the grave. And thank you that because we are in him, our heads will be lifted as well. And they can be lifted. They are continually lifted in this life, even though all around us we are tempted to despair and be discouraged and be downcast and be fearful and be worried. Lord, you are our glory. You are all we need. Make yourself central and significant. Make yourself, again, our all in all. And encourage us through this psalm, even this morning, to respond in a way that honors you when the troubles of life overwhelm us. We pray all this in the name of our conquering Savior and King, your anointed one, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.